AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. I am delighted and proud to introduce him as Academy Award winner. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... The winner, it's a tie. And any little girl who's, who's practicing their speech on the telly, you never know. Mom, I just want an Oscar. I'm Katie Rich. I'm coming to you from the Toronto International Film Festival, where I have seen so many movies over the past couple of days. And one of them was Dumb Money, the movie from Craig Gillespie about the GameStop stock frenzy, which happened in January of 2021. And I lived through that, obviously, but didn't remember it all that well. Um, and this movie is an incredibly entertaining and you know, at some points rage-inducing look at the income inequality that made something like this happen. Um, it, play, it opened on Friday night in Toronto. Know, played really great for the crowd. It's about to come to theaters, so everyone's going to get a chance to see it. And I really liked talking to Craig about threading together this massive story and about some of the choices that they made that are surprising and I think make it so interesting, uh, including casting Seth Rogen as a hedge fund guy who maybe you should hate, but if it's Seth Rogen, he's less hateable and that makes it more interesting. And making a movie set in January of 2021, so you have characters who are wearing masks and are trying not to take public transit and all these things that we've moved on from and might have happily forgotten about, but are really important for telling the story. Uh, Craig's lovely. He's really, you know, explains well the realities of making films and how he was supposed to make another film that the financing fell through and kind of why he makes something that he never expected to make and what's good about making movies that surprise you. Uh, so let's hear my conversation with Dumb Money director Craig Gillespie. Craig Gillespie, thank you so much for joining to talk to me. We were just saying how I'm still in Toronto. You have left. Um, you're a veteran of the festival. It's a weird year. You know, normally you would be taking the stage at the premiere with like the 15 stars of your movie, something like <laughs> you know, that. Yes, there are there are a lot of people. I'm, I was very very lucky to get this cast together, but yeah, it was really it was really you know it's really hard not to have them. And be able to share this because it's such a moment, you know, with all this hard work and collaboration we've all done together and and put into it. But interestingly, it's kind of so timely because this film is all about the disparity of wealth and the frustration and wanting to be heard and feeling like the system's rigged against them. And, and you know, that is what's going on right now. 
Yeah. I mean, so I, Tanya came here and was such a huge audience hit. And you come back with a movie that's about power to the people in a really specific way. And I wonder what that audience response felt like. Maybe that was different from the last time you were here. It's a bit of an out of body experience every time you <laughs> then. I have I have no I have no real sense. It's like I sat there in the theater with I Tanya and as soon as it finished I turned to my wife and said, I don't think that went well. And <laughs> she's like, No, I think it was okay. It's like it's like, it's so hard to know what's going on. It's like it's and this is, you know, this was literally the first time I've seen the film completely finished. Wow. And I see I have to sh- see it with with a thousand people. Um, so it was, it was kind of, uh, you know, it's very wild. It's very nerve wracking, but there is such a movement that this movie is about, you know, with the 8 million people Mm -hmm. and wanting to be heard in this collective voice. So to be able to be in a theater and feel that energy and that frustration and that anger in a real like way was incredibly gratifying. Yeah. Was it a rush to the finish line to finish? Is that why it was the first time you'd seen it complete? The thing that honestly was slowing it down, which is way too much getting into the mechanics, was just the the visual effects. Oh, sure. <laughs> There's surprisingly so many screenshots in this film. <laughs> you know. Yeah, I wanted to ask about the presence, not just of everyone being on their screens, but the use of memes for storytelling. Like, I think there have been other movies that have used internet language and memes before, but I don't think it's ever been as prominent and as important to the story as it, as it in this movie. You can't tell the GameStop story without... Reddit memes, really, which is not easy no. for everyone to understand. And I, you know, I know your son was involved in this, so maybe you had that sense of language from that. But like, when you decide to make those so central to your story, and it's so specific to understand why you would have like a meme with H O D L instead of spelling <laughs> hold correctly, like that specific. How, like, how did how did you figure out how to make that part of the story and make it clear to people who maybe don't know anything about this? Interestingly, um, yes, my son was uh, very much a part of this, and he was living with us during COVID. He's 24 at the time. And so I got to see this firsthand, and he would come downstairs and show us these memes, you know, and these tweets like from Elon Musk and and the outrage of the response that was happening within all of this. In fact, um, you know, the one meme, he came down at one point, and he's like, if you're making a movie about this, this is the number one meme on Wall Street Bets right now, which was the guy drinking his own urine. You know, it's like, this has to be in the film. Yeah. And you see it in the scene with Gabe Pluck and looking at it, and like, you know, mm-hmm. because that's what was happening at the time. But the memes is so integ- integral to this because it's how this community would interact and it's how they would mm-hmm. come together. And it also showed you the spirit and the exuberance with which this was all happening, as well as the frustration. So we, it was a very bizarre thing, but we got together a team of people to collect everything they could find that was happening at that moment with the memes, also with the news anchors, the talk show hosts, mm-hmm. like every, from every aspect. And it was critical to feel the scale of this. And the one way of doing that was with this conversation that was happening through memes, the amount of people chiming in, the amount of comments. And so it was very integral to the storyline and yeah. um, trying to figure out where to put it, how much of it, like, you know, where it was necessary. That was that was a, a bit of an evolution. Yeah. And there's something too, right, that they have, you know, the language of finance is so opaque and that's part of what they're fighting against. And that kind of as a response, the people of Reddit have created their own language that gay plot can, can't possibly understand. Like it's a form of rebellion, <laughs> right? Yeah, absolutely. It's like, and, and, and they're all, they're very deliberately not playing by their rules. And it's like, I think part of the frustration and part of what was hard for, 
the Wall Street community to to get wrap their heads around was their logic because they're not playing by the they're not playing the game the same way. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know there there is a comments with you where you see some of the you know some of the uh, the CNN anchors talking saying you need to go to the site you need to hear what they're saying. You know it's it was just a, a very different approach to what was happening. Yeah, and so I know you make a movie with the studio. There's a vast legal department to make sure that everything is on the up and up. But my understanding is that some of the richer people depicted in this movie are maybe not thrilled with how, how they're being shown. How much do you concern yourself with that with that when you're making the movie? Do you kind of want them to be pissed off, but in a legal way? Like what? What? How do you let that get to you? Well, Rebecca and Angelo and, and Lon Shaka Bloom were Wall Street journalists, investigative reporters, so the tenacity with which they investigated everything and verified everything along the way because we we knew we were dealing with large entities here and we had we ha- we had to make sure that we were we were being true to mm-hmm. the actual events we're not trying to we're not trying to like mischaracterize anything uh the facts speak for themselves and we just wanted to make sure we got it right and then mm-hmm. it, like from that you understand like why there was all of this frustration and anger and the sense of feeling marginalized and having a system rigged against him because once you go through the blow by blow of what actually happened that's the natural reaction to it mm-hmm. um so we we expected because we're delving into a very complicated subject here that there would be people that would you know not be entirely happy about it but on the flip side the interesting part of this film, and yes, it's like there's this large group, it's like the 99% of our population that this was a mouthpiece for, but mm-hmm. because we're trying to stay very accurate to the truth of it, it becomes a very subjective experience. So I believe, you know, I believe and the hope is, and, and having spoken to some people in, in the banking community, as far as they're concerned, it's like, you know what they're doing is is legal and it's within the bounds of the law and they're allowed to do it and they're just using the system the way it's been created and so there's this sort of a, a completely different perspective for them mm-hmm. and so when they watch the film we're portraying that it's just from the other perspective that's what's so outrageous about it but for them that's business business as usual yeah just because it's legal doesn't mean you can't be mad about it yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's so it's a different experience for I think, the banking community, but I think they relate to it in a different way. Like, mm-hmm. It's like this was a very, a very like incredibly intense, unusual experience that happened. It's nice to have a little bit of perspective and see it from both sides, I'm sure, for them. But it's like the drive for this and the frustration and, and the, you know, and, and really what we're trying to accomplish is this sense of outrage that's going on in the country. And this was, this was a beginning of, uh, of that dialogue. Yeah. I wouldn't say this movie is not pro bank in any way. You, as you say, you're capturing that outrage, but as you're kind of two big heavyweight finance guys, you've got Nick Offerman and Seth Rogen who are really likable actors. Every other time you see them in a movie, basically you're so happy to see them. And that did feel like a deliberate <laughs> choice that, you know, we're seeing Gabe Plotkin with his wife, we're seeing their struggles with air quotes, but yes. I wonder why why that was a choice for you. Why they they didn't need to just be like bad guys in suits. That there's more to those two characters. I think I think it's just too easy to just vilify mm-hmm. and have a black and white story. It's like you know, like everybody thinks that they're doing the right thing for the most part, unless they're like psychotic. You know, <laughs> so to be able to understand 
that these are human beings. This is like people's lives, you know, even though it's like all of this stuff is happening online and everybody's attacking an individual, it's a person, you know, mm-hmm. and it's like, it's sometimes like, to be able to step back and realize that, and it's much more about the institution than the individual. We just wanted to be fair to that. It was important to show yeah. like, you know, show that and have that humanity in there. So, you know, Seth was a deliberate choice, but I, I love when you get an actor to, that can play against type, you know, mm-hmm. it's not what's expected. Um, and then it, and he gets his surprises in that way. But there is this humanity to him that I thought was important to have. Did you ask him and Nick Offerman both to just like play their guys as if they think they're the good guys? Is that, is that how you, you know, help a actor craft that kind of performance? It, 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 we didn't get that specific on it, but <laughs> it's like this is this is their daily life. Like as hedge fund guys, mm-hmm. this is, you know. They're looking for opportunities, ways to make money, like trades that they can do. And it's like part of the frustration, you know, in, in our country is these moves that they make, this like shorting of large corporations that can send them bankrupt affects the lives of hundreds of thousands of people. And that that allocation of uh, of bandwidth for them doesn't seem to, you know, to be there in that community. So mm-hmm. I think from their, from their level, they're just operating in a different headspace. Yeah, it's like they move one thing and it affects millions of people, but they don't even know. Yeah. And they would never Understand otherwise know. consequences, yeah. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How is your social battery right now? What's the right amount of socializing for you? And how do you recharge? Maybe you thrive around people, or maybe you need more alone time. Therapy can give you the self-awareness to build a social life that doesn't drain your battery. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. Find your social sweet spot with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash littlegoldmen today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash little gold men. Wondry's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segeith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. So, you know, you've talked about how when, you know, your son was involved in this, you know, it's January 2021, everyone's in lockdown. But I was thinking about, you know, Corella's coming out right around then. Like, where were you as a director when this was happening and then this film coming to you? Like, what 
what did that movie make you want to look for? What made this feel like the right thing? How much control do you have over what you're choosing? And, you know, coming out of the pandemic and having this be your post-pandemic movie, it's a choice because you're going right back in there. So, like, how did that fit in your, you know, what you wanted for yourself? It's a house of cards, the whole Hollywood system of what's going to get made and not, and not get made. It's like, and even this film, it's like, it looks like it's going to get made. It's not getting made. It's almost getting made. We almost lost, you know, lost the financing. It's it's it's, constant, it's so tenuous. But what was happening at the time, I think I was probably finishing up Corella editorially when this was happening mm-hmm. at home, yeah. cutting at home, living in with it with my son. But actually, I was developing a script uh, Chippendales with Rebecca mm-hmm. and Lauren, the writers. Um, a couple of months after this event, uh, you know, th- we were talking constantly about GameStop because of how I lived through it with my son. And I, it was a very visceral, you know, experience. And I was so always curious about that, what was going on with that. But we were only two or three months out from what we thought was going to be our next feature. Mm-hmm. Financing was set up, was, you know, Get, doing casting and Seth was attached actually um, and then suddenly it imploded mm-hmm. um, so the next day Rebecca and Lauren sent this script over wow. and I just consumed it like that evening and it absolutely captured everything I was feeling and just the trajectory of it the tension of it the intensity the frustration and I think partly too because I I lived it so viscerally with mm-hmm. my son that I, I I translated that into the script and that was what I really wanted to capture. So that's how it came together, and then it came together very quickly. Does that so you know you've made independent films long enough to like have the finance collapsing, the finance talks like you're dealing with the banking system in that way, which is really interesting and not how most people interact yeah. with it. But I wonder if like independent filmmakers really have that frustration because of how much power the banking types have over what kind of art you can make. It feels like such a crazy trade-off when you think about it. Actually, well, the interesting thing, like the trade-off in the independent world for me is you don't have quite the same amount of money, but I'm in a fortunate place where I have complete freedom. Yeah. So Black Bear, who financed this, was incre- you know, incredibly supportive. And at that point, I get to which I got to do an Ice Hunter as well. I get to run, go with my instincts, trust mm. my actors, and cast the people I want. Make the changes we want to the script. Like really, really, just keep our eye on the on the creative. That's exhilarating. It's it's done very quickly, but it's exhilarating. <laughs> <laughs> when you say quickly, so finance comes together, and like what a year later, you've got a movie made. Is that about how fast this was? Yeah, but quickly, even in the sense of like, so we like Rebecca and Lauren sent me the script. Even from when they wrote it till it till I got it, the congressional hearing had happened, but it uh-huh. wasn't in the script. Yeah, and it was probably only about three months till we were shooting. So very quickly, mm-hmm. you know, and then there was only I think six weeks of actual prep, like on the ground finding locations. So very quickly, we're like, I think that congressional hearing is the heart of the film, and to see like when you look at Keith mm-hmm. Gill's testimony. And the journey that he's on, and he's this lone person that's been grilled by Congress up against all of these corporations and trying to be made a scapegoat out of it. And it's yeah. like it's exactly the frustration that everybody's talking about and that he leaned in and held his ground. It's like that's our you know, that's our journey. And so they very quickly, you know, rewrote that, but then that trickles through the whole movie because then halfway mm-hmm. through he's getting subpoenaed. And as I sat down with Paul Dano for that six weeks leading up to it we started really digging in and being like, all right, hang on a second. So 
at this point in time, he's just lost $30 million in 48 hours. We found like this photograph of him waving outside of his house in the Daily Mail, yeah. you know, right around when he got subpoenaed. It's like, what's happening in his house right now? Like these are mm-hmm. incredibly life-changing, stressful moments. Uh, so all of these things would be just adding in in real time, you know. And then yeah. Pete Davidson would sign on and be like, oh, we let's have a, a, like a, a scene with Pete and Paul and Rebecca and Lauren would do their research and be like, all right, so so Kevin Gill did run naked when he was in college for a mile <laughs> in a thunderstorm. So we create a scene around that, you know? Not just a scene, so it's like a running sequence of the film. That's like a big thematic exactly. element. Yes. So it was that part of it was was really exciting to be able to be that nimble uh, with without uh, you know with Rebecca and Lauren and then uh, with the actors and just really make it this creative process. Yeah, I noticed and I think I'm right that Keith Gill's child is never named. That you see the baby, but there's no name for it. And it it felt when I get to the end and you see that he's kind of like left public life, it made it feel like that was a deliberate effort to helping his privacy. What else did you guys have to do? Because he clearly wants to be a private citizen now, but this movie exists. So how do you navigate that? Yeah. It's 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 always a complicated situation, but what we really really tried to to honor was was drawing from everything that he's he's posted. Mm-hmm. So if he'd had a dialogue about it, if he's talked about things that has been in his post, that's what we would draw from. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we didn't, we would try and honor that as much as possible. So that was sort of a touchstone for us. And and even you know Paul was such a gatekeeper to that. It'd be like, well, he didn't actually say it like this. Can we just change mm, that dialogue mm-hmm. and, you know, and, and be like, absolutely, because, you know, we really wanted to get it right. Um, like down to the opening post of him where it's like, nice shirt, grandpa and nerd in all caps. <laughs> that's literally his opening post. You know, those shirts that he's wearing, Cameron Lennox, our costume designer, found the artist that creates those and found the exact shirts. You wow, know? that's cool. So, so the research was there and then. Because they are real, you know, real, real people. We want to try and be as right as possible. Do you know if he or any of the other real people have seen the movie? Uh, we've reached out to Keith like along, like in the prep, in the during the shoot, so forth. There's been no response. So ultimately, we just want to respect his privacy and not yeah. push that in any way. Yeah. Uh, not sure about the other people. The movie's coming out this weekend. <laughs> I think I think we may find out. <laughs> you might see the tweets one way or another. Yes. Um, when um, you did a first look with us a couple months ago for this film and you were talking about the weirdness of shooting it where you've got you know, 15 different movies basically because each actor is really on their own in their pockets. I mean, I assume that's the first time you've worked like that in your career. What, what do you have to adjust to as a director yeah. to make a movie in that way? For me, it was, I mean, I, I still do, a, I've done a lot of commercials over the years. So that's a very short story in a very mm-hmm. condensed period of time. And I, I could bring that tool, I think, like quite easily to this. So there was a fun aspect to it. But the bizarreness is, except for Pete and Paul and Shailene, no, nobody's really in a scene together. Yeah. Everybody is completely isolated because by the nature of COVID. And uh, they are coming in and they've got their whole own location, their mm-hmm. whole environment, and their they're, they're set of characters around them. So, and with the exception of Paul, no prep time because uh, we had very complicated schedules with these actors. You know, Anthony had these three days. Pete was shooting a show at the same time. It's like, so it's trying to interweave that scheduling. So they'd have yeah. to come in and understand a very tricky tone because they're all in the same film. 
mm-hmm. and 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 feel like it's cohesive. But they're all actors that either I've worked with, I've wanted to work with. Like Pete and Anthony, we were in a attached to a movie together that fell apart, a different film. Um, <laughs> it's a theme. It's a theme. I know. So <laughs> it's like so they're all actors that work in this space, this tone that I really, really enjoy working in, which is this dance with the humor and the drama yeah. that's got real emotional stakes. And so they can all deliver on that. Like America Ferreira, I had not worked with, but I'd seen it so often in her work and that dance that she can do. And I was so excited to get her because she's really the mouthpiece for the have-nots in the film, the really yeah. frustrated, the marginalized. And you need that ferocity. You need that that anger and that resentment you know, that to be represented, but you also need to do it with a deft touch and with some humor mm-hmm. that that can walk that line and keep her accessible, you know, and she killed it. Yeah. You can't make this movie without acknowledging COVID. Obviously it's so important to why it happened in real life. And when the movie's set, but you do have a choice and like, you can set scenes inside. So no one has to have masks on and you can like, you can have it be less obvious, but I love how central, standing six feet apart from a stranger and keeping your mask on and off like that that's become so much of the story so how did how did you guys figure out how much to put that in there without everyone being like i don't want to see mask anymore get it away from me because we're not eager to revisit it but it's important it's it, it was incredibly important to me to have the audience be aware of this moment in time because it was covid that made this happen it's like you know we, yeah. we were isolated there was a huge disruption going on with people losing their jobs, their financing, the incredible health scare, a loss of lives, the social unrest with Black Lives Matter, people trying to connect online, uh, the disparity of wealth becoming very acutely uh, obvious, like with the postings of social media and this, this real sense and, and awareness of that disparity. All of that was because of what we were living through with COVID. Yeah. And... I think, you know, this voice, this rallying of 8 million people, it happened to be around a stock. There's like, there needed to just be an outlet. And mm-hmm. suddenly there was this opportunity to really stick it to the the percenters, or in this case, like the 0.01%ers, and be heard and hit them where it hurts. And so to be able to channel that, it happened to be a stock. It's like it was happening elsewhere. It was happening with protests, with Black Lives Matter. It's But this was one vehicle to do that. So, and it was all because of COVID. So mm-hmm. trying to, trying to like remind people of, of what that was and to remind them of that experience and that, that isolation and that yearning to connect in this and just the fear mm-hmm. that was involved with all that was critical. When it got to the actual mechanics of it and we started shot listing and I turned to my DP and I'm like, Oh shit they're going to be wearing a mask in this scene. We're not going to be able to see their face. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, What do we do about that? And so there were these tricks that we would employ. You know, you meet Paul for the first time on the train. I'm like, have a have a cup of coffee so we can take a sip and see it's you. You know that, but but like that specifically, everyone I know was like, oh, I remember doing that. I remember having like to pull it down and take a drink. It's it it is so evocative and also practical. Yeah. And then we're in a hospital. It's like there's no way they're going to take their masks off during COVID. So we have to put them like in an in a enclosed space mm-hmm. eating 
having yeah. a, having a lunch break, you know, where they've pulled their masks down so that we can have this, you know, a scene between the two actors. So yeah, yeah, it was it was, and then the other choices, like the other opportunities in terms of this wealth disparity, to see the very wealthy with their staff all in masks and they're not in masks, you know, that contradiction yeah. to see Florida having a party and nobody's wearing masks, you know, you had all these <laughs> opportunities to comment on the politics that were going on in a very subtle way. Yeah. Do you ever worry that audiences are going to see this and be like, I don't want I can't revisit that time in my life. Like, get me out of there. <laughs> I, it's, I loved the opportunity that we could look at it and we could capture mm-hmm. it. And because it's, it, it's such a profound moment for all of us. It's like a time when life was put on pause and you had to like reevaluate it. And I think it's completely changed our yeah. culture. It's changed the way that people look at what's what's the value system is, what's important to them, the balance of work and, and life that I think I don't think there's any turning back from it now. Yeah. So I, I was excited to be able to to like look at that, even though it was so recently. Know that fizzy feeling you get when you read something really good, watch the movie everyone's been talking about, or catch the show the internet can't get over? At the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast, we chase that feeling five times a week. We talk about the buzziest movies, TV, music, books, and more. From lowbrow to highbrow to in-between, catch the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. So I asked you how Corella and then the pandemic made you think about what you wanted to make next. How does making this movie make you think about what you want to make next? What did you learn from on this that you want to do again or never want to do again? I tend to try and just stay as open as possible. It's, you know, I think trying too hard to figure out your direction um, is just too limiting. It's like I wasn't expecting to make a film about this. I wasn't expecting to do dumb money, but then with the confluence of events, they came together and the material just spoke to me. It's like, ultimately it's always about the material. So it could be Corella too. It could be another independent film. It's like, it's something that I just, I can read it. I can connect with it. And then I, I, I know how I want to shoot it. Well, it means you'll never be bored because you never know what you're going to make next. <laughs> That's no, pretty it's good. It's, 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 uh, you know, I, I just take it at the call level of like, am I excited to tell this story? You know, because it's it's a lot of like a yeah. commitment to do this for a year or two, as long as it takes, and you got to get up every day and do these sixteen-hour days. So you better want to get up and do it. <laughs> that does it for today's show. We'll be back on Thursday talking about so many of the highlights of Toronto. Find us in the meantime on Twitter and Instagram at VF Awards Insider. We've got a festival live blog going at VanityFair.com so you can see all of our updates from the festivals. You can follow me on Twitter at Katie Rich. Our editor and producer, as always, is Brett Fuchs.
I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new uh, translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs> Thank you.